Okay. So the recording is on, so I think we can officially get started here. Uh, Susie is going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, Susie is going to be doing our welcome announcements here in just a sec, but before she comes on, I just wanted to go over some of the technical um, concerns uh, for this. Uh, those of you that were here yesterday, this is going to sound pretty familiar to you, but uh, for anybody that is new here that was not here yesterday, we are going to, obviously we're holding this live, um, but we're doing it online. Uh, we are going to have the speakers be on video while they are talking. Uh, we will, uh, for the keynote addresses from uh, Vedette and Patricia, we're not going to hold a Q&A session um, in the interest of time. Uh, but if you, in the audience, if you have questions or if you've got comments that you would like to pass on to the keynote address uh, speakers, then you're welcome to contact me or Susie through the various contact information on the website. So the way this will work is for the keynotes, we will record these, uh, obviously, and then later we will have a couple of panels. On those panels, we will have all of the speakers on video. Some of the speakers will have slide decks, uh, some will not. Uh, and then it, during the presentations or during the pe panel presentations, we will have question and answer sessions where I will open up the chat boxes and the uh, microphones for people that want to ask a question or make a comment. So for now, uh, I am going to remove the chat box for now, and I'm going to hand things over to Susie so she can start the day. So thank you, everybody, for coming, and I'm looking forward to a good day. everyone. Can everyone hear me? Yes. So we're so delighted to have you back. I'm Yangsan Chang, your host today. And I, again, I go by Susie in English and Yangsan in Korean. And to give a recap of yesterday, We're great in theology, ICAFOM, International Council of Museums, the United States, ICOM US, Association of African American Museums, AAAM, and Southern New Hampshire University, SNU, to host this second online symposium. We had a warm, welcoming address and closing remarks by Rob Denning who has been leading this web platform day and night this entire week, and keynote speeches by Bruno Brulon Suarez and Jesse Riker Crawford, and the panel moderated by Supreo Chanda, with presentations by Victoria Miller, Claudia Ankara, and me. So if you happen to have missed our presentations yesterday, Rob will be making recordings available. And today, we have a full schedule ahead with keynote speeches, two panels, and later the ICAFOM Annual General Assembly, which is open to everyone. And we have now the pleasure and honor to welcome Vedette Coleman Robinson, who is the Executive Director of Triple AM, and who recently hosted a fabulous, successful virtual conference. And previous to this position, Vedette worked for the National Park Service in the State Tribal Local Plans and Grants Division as Grants Management Specialist and 
program lead for the Historically Black Colleges and Universities Grant and Underrepresented Community Grant Programs, in addition to Save America's Treasures, African American Civil Rights, Preserve America, and the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Bedet is a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. She has a Bachelor of Arts in U.S. History from Virginia State University, a Master of Arts in U.S. History with a concentration in public history, and is currently pursuing a PhD focusing on African Americans in public history at Howard University. And so now Bedet's presentation today our keynote speaker will be on the importance of museums and community through a virtual lens. Bedette? Thank you so much, Susie. I'm so happy to be here and thank all of you for uh, being here with us. I, as soon as Susie asked, I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, I'll speak, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Um, so as Susie mentioned, uh, my name is Vedette Coleman-Robinson and I'm the Executive Director of the Association of African American Museums. Our organization has been around for 42 years and we specialize uh, in supporting uh, African and African American focused museums nationally and internationally. Um, and we also uh, support the professionals who protect, preserve, and interpret these histories. Um, so we really uh, are so excited that we're, I mean, we've had so much change in the past year, um, but the, the main thing that has happened for us is we've had to just move everything virtual. Um, and, you know, as we're moving things virtual, our museums are moving things virtual, some of you guys are moving things virtual. It's just, it, it's what is happening with COVID. Um, but I also feel like uh, right now, um, this is the time, like 2020, right? I mean, there's, I wouldn't be surprised, 2020 has been a, a bit of a challenge, and I would not be surprised if there was a pterodactyl flying by my, uh, my house tomorrow. Um, but I, I, I'm thankful that, I, you know, these, these unprecedented times are happening um, in the year 2020 instead of 1990 or 1980, uh, where we would have had that horrible dial-up in trying to connect with one another. Um, it would have been absolutely a nightmare. Um, so I'm glad we're, you know, we, can, we can do things uh, virtually and very well. Um, so when Susie asked me what I wanted to speak about, I wanted to really touch base on um, the importance of museums and community, um, just period, uh, because that's how all of our AAAM museums start. Um, and as we look at that, it winds up, the virtual lens winds up happening really quickly because you already have a base in your community. Um, our museums, I, I, we have a few pillars um, we have the Charles H. Wright Museum in Detroit, Michigan, the DuSable Museum in uh, Chicago, Illinois, and the Anacostia Community um, Museum in uh, Southeast DC. Um, and these museums, uh, while they were being established through the Black Arts Movement um, and, and Black Arts Protest Movement, because there was 
no way uh, black people weren't seeing themselves in museums, uh, in the mainstream museums. So it wound up happening. Charles Wright, Margaret Burroughs got together. They already started uh, creating their own museums, collecting from the community, placing their museums in the community. Um, and that's important. Um, and since then, all of our museums have kind of uh, had that same standard, um, creating their museums in the communities in which they serve, uh, to include the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, when that museum was uh, first established um, and the legislation was created, um, now Secretary Alani Bunch um, was doing stakeholders meetings and finding out from the community what, where folks wanted that museum and then also um, what collections needed to be in that museum, which artifacts needed to be in that museum. So when, when COVID hit and we had to temporarily close our museums, um, what wound up happening is at first we were scrambling. We had to shut down quickly and make sure that everyone was safe. But in that, there was um, a need from the community to still have touch points um, to the museums. So uh, we started including AAAM. Uh, all of our, my museum members, for the most part, started rallying around the idea of, oh my gosh, there's this thing, Zoom, it's amazing. Let's go ahead, <laughs> you know, or whatever platform, um, Microsoft uh, Teams and uh, Adobe Connect, you know, it's just, it, let's do stuff. Let's have programming. We already have the programming. And although we would have had this in person, let's switch it to virtual. And that's what everyone started doing. Um, and then for the most part, also, um, in addition to programming, uh, our museums started getting very creative and uh, hosting virtual tours, whether that was docent-led, um, whether it was just, uh, you know, somebody on staff grabbed an iPhone or whatever phone or uh, technology they had and just hurried up and did a video and posted that on their website. That was, that was something as well. Um, also, um, in 2020, um, you know, we have this uh, double pandemic happening where um, we're trying to, uh, African Americans across the, the country are trying to grapple with uh, the increased social injustice that continues to happen. So what's, what wound up also happening is communities in which our museums serve um, were actually also, uh, as protests were happening, um, you know, uh, the marchers were, the protest marchers were actually showing up at those museums, not going inside, but those museums were safe havens. So if they started off at one location, they would end at the museums um, because the museums are part of the community. And a, a great uh, example of that is the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, these protesters, well, the protesters started, I wanna say at City Hall, but then they ended up um, at the National Civil Rights Museum. And the, the beauty in that is just the fact that um, folks look at our, our museums as uh, safe havens, beacons of hope, um, and they're connected. So 
as mainstream museums are trying to figure out um, what can we do? Um, how can we how can we start this pivot? How can we be more in touch with the community? I received a phone call uh, not too long ago from someone who was asking um, why is it that this particular uh, history museum um, or historical society that's in an African-American neighborhood um, wasn't receiving, like uh, their, their, their visitation wasn't uh, African-Americans, but they were in an African-American neighborhood. And I said, well, has the uh, center done anything? I mean, has the, um, has the historical society or whatever it was, um, have they done anything in the community? Because you can be a museum and, and be in the community. And um, if you're not serving that community in some type of way, uh, they're not going to, folks are not going to see themselves in your museum um, and they're not going to come. It's kind of like having, um, although this is a, a different type of analogy because obviously museums are not grocery stores, but it's like having a grocery store um, in a community where uh, things are outpriced. Um, you know, uh, goods are outpriced for that neighborhood or, um, you know, enter, uh, you know, if nobody does arts and crafts in a particular community, whatever that community is, um, and there's, uh, you know, an arts and crafts store in the, in the, uh, in the neighborhood, people aren't going to go and purchase those goods. So, um, you know, museums are, are businesses and museums, um, you know, folks need to feel connected. So I implored um, the, the individual who called um, to just go ahead and, and look at their collections, um, start engaging the community. Like you can have a community, you can have a program, but just because you're having a program doesn't necessarily mean that people are gonna come all the time. Um, your, your programs have to con connect with those individuals and I was kind of astonished because I thought that um, I thought that research like that had already been done um, but you know this is this is a time of learning um, also I, the the individual also asked well if I'm doing things if the if the organization is doing things virtual um, why isn't our reach just the community in you know the community in which the museum stands like if, if it's virtual, everybody should be able to come. And my question was, you know, how many people in the community have internet? You, you know, those are things that we, we, need, we need to address. I know for, for uh, a lot of our AAAM museums, our museums um, sometimes also doubled up as community centers um, uh, or uh, places where people could come and, and use internet. Um, similar to a library. Uh, so if that particular uh, community um, in which this, this history museum um, was established or was in um, did not have resources for the community, um, you know, there, there's, there's things like that, that there's a disconnect. So um, I implore you as you are uh, in this program or uh, if, if you know of anyone um, who's looking at this lens of being virtual. Sometimes just because you build it um, does not necessarily mean that they will come. Um, you have to do some work. 
uh, even with this conference, you know, there was work that needed to be done. Susie was working and Rob was working behind the scenes to make sure that uh, <laughs> everybody that was involved um, in, in the reach of, uh, of everyone that would be interested um, really did, you know, come out. Um, we did the same thing with our conference. Uh, we had it uh, at the beginning of, of the month. Um, you know, at first we were, let's just, you know, have something for our members that uh, would still allow us to do some wonderful things and, uh, you know, keep everyone safe. Um, but then, you know, it hit me really quickly, like, okay, well, there's so many other people who would be interested in what AAAM does. Um, we are a professional development organization, and we can do so many things virtually um, that speak to just about any and everyone. Um, and this year, uh, we had attendance. It was our highest um, attendance that we've ever had for our conferences um, of almost 600 people. Um, and that, that will continue to grow. And uh, we also have had a few... Uh, a few uh, like trainings and discussions um, and, and programming around you know what's happening with uh, you know the the murders of Joy, George George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the list goes on and on and on and how people are showing up um, it's traumatic uh, so how are people showing up to work how are how are our allies showing up to work? And when, you know, folks are looking for a way to help and the world is kind of shut down, how do you do that? So we just really started also looking at that, like what, what programming um, can we do to support not just our members, but, you know, any and everyone who, who wants to uh, be connected and also um, who needs help. Um, so th those are some things uh, that have really helped us. Um, I'm trying to think of just a couple other things, but for the most part, that that that's what I would want you guys to um, take home with you um, and walk away with. Just when you're doing a pivot, or even when even if your organization is hybrid or you're thinking about establishing, establishing um, a museum, just be flexible and also have virtual programming because the, the technology is out there. Um, I cannot tell you how many uh, video chats, calls, everything, and my eyes are getting really wide. I hope that you could just see that, but um, that I've been on since, since uh, March. And um, I've almost gotten to the point where I prefer, I prefer a virtual uh, conversation um, over the phone. And it's really just because you feel a little bit more connected to people when the world has been shut down and we can't do. Um, and we're also seeing that same thing in our museums. Um, the Reginald F. Lewis Museum um, of Maryland History, African-American History and Culture in, in Baltimore, Maryland, um, was doing some programming for children. Uh, and a lot of our museums are doing the same thing, but they, they did a program about um, comic books and how, how children can make their own comic books. And it, it was so timely because they also had um, a, an exhibit 
around comic books right before we had to uh, uh, temporarily shut down. So, uh, you know, they they had uh, Black Panther there and some of the other Marvel characters. And it was, it was really neat. It was really engaging. The kids really loved it. Um, but for them to pivot that whole program um, to make it virtual was absolutely amazing. Um, you know, and, and with, with so many children being home and not in school, that was just a, a void that they were able to quickly fill. Um, and because it was comic books, there were so many people on that, on that training um, that, you know, just from around the country that it was just amazing. Your reach virtually is, is uh, you know, unlimited. Uh, and, then, you know, we see that all the time. If you're on any social media uh, platforms, you see that your reach, unless your accounts are locked down, um, you see that your reach is a little bit more outside of your bubble. Um, so that, that same thing applies to um, museums and, and uh, public, public, public history spaces. Um, something else that's really cool that's happening are the, like the, the sites, the historical sites. Um, they're doing walking tours. So some of them are actually doing walking tours. You can tap into their, uh, their website and sign up for a tour, and then you're being led by a ranger or being led by um, the site manager about what that, that space looks like um, on a daily basis, and it's really cool. So people are getting um, really uh, creative, um, and I, I feel like, you know, just please, I, like I said, I implore you, as you're uh, working on your assignments or as you're out in the field, <laughs> whatever it is, just always have that virtual piece in it while you're doing your planning um, because it's, it's, it's pivotal to survival at this point. Um, and I, I'm going to close, but I, I really wanted to thank all of you for, um, for inviting me and for having me. Uh, Susie and Rob, I, I thank you so, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Susie, I'm so thankful for you coming to the AAAM conference. Um, it means the world to me to, for you to support us, and I will support you whenever you need it. Um, and, and let me know if you need anything else. I'm, I'm around. Oh, thank you so much. I, I have to say that I really enjoyed your conference. It was so fun. The, the first thing was it was so fun. <laughs> So especially the reception. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, so that's something else, right? So um, our our normal conferences, um, our in-person conferences, we have uh, receptions with a DJ or a band, um, and I really wanted that same theme. I wanted that same feeling, although it was virtual. So yes, we had a reception every night with a DJ and. Um, you know, and we, we just had a really good time and it was a relief. Uh, so that's definitely something that anybody can implement into their programming. You know, if you just want like a, an event really quickly to bring people out so that they can dance and get some of this energy out, um, you know, get, the, <laughs> get all their juices flowing. So that, <laughs> and then you had your, your screen off the whole time. Exactly. And I, I was so <laughs> surprised so that surprised. it didn't crash. The computer didn't the crash with didn't so crash. many people visible. <laughs> I mean, there were hundreds of people visible. 
and I, I wished I could have been visible. I wasn't prepared to be in my party you know, outfit and everything. So. I'll know next, next time. time to put next out a little a little video or something to say, um, you know, if you show up to the reception, like, have your screen, you know, have your camera on. And um, also, you know, come dress to impress, at least from the waist up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I could see people making food in the kitchen, <laughs> dancing in the chair. It was a fabulous, you, only museum people only would be doing right? Right, right, right. It's nice though. We're it's so nice thankful to, to you. I, I'm, Thank you. I, I'm very, very grateful very, very for grateful you taking the time to come and speak and um, will take away a lot of important things from your keynote speech and um, Next, we'll have Patricia Banks, who is also, she's a, she's a professor and researcher in the museum field as well, and represents African-American culture. I saw her bio. It looks like you guys are in for a real treat. She, I saw her bio earlier. I was like, oh, it really, it, 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 look like, it does look like you guys are in for a treat. I love the programming that you put together. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. So um, I, I I look forward to seeing Patricia's um, Patricia's speech, uh, and I really I really thank you guys. It's been it's been amazing. Thank you for that for the logo, for the logo and your speech. And <laughs> no problem. Our partnership. Our partnership. No problem. Anything you need, anything you need, Susie. I'm here. Thank you. Thank Bye. So next, we have, we're excited and honored to listen to Patricia A. Banks, who received her PhD and Master of Arts at Harvard University and her Bachelor of Arts from Spelman College. She is currently Professor of Sociology at Mount Holyoke College. And in 2018 through 2019, Patricia was in residence at Stanford University as a Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences Fellow. She was also a Harvard University at, she was at Harvard U University as a Sheila Biddle Ford Foundation Fellow and non-resident fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. In addition, she received fellowships or grants from institutions such as the UNCF Mellon Foundation, the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, and the American Association of University Women. Patricia is author of the three books, including Race, Ethnicity, and Consumption, A Sociological View, Diversity and Philanthropy at African American Museums, and Represent Art, an identity among the black upper middle class, and her manuscript, Black Culture Incorporated, How Cultural Patronage Pays for Business, is under contract with Stanford University Press. Patricia's presentation today is on cultural philanthropy and diversity in the 21st century. Patricia?
I can't seem to hear you. Do you can want to turn on your microphone? Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, yes I, I can. Perfect. Thank Perfect. you. <laughs> well, good morning. We can take a screenshot. Okay. <laughs> So good morning, my name is Patricia Banks and I'm a professor of sociology at Mount Holyoke College and I am absolutely delighted to be here. I want to thank Susie and Rob and all of the other organizers of the conference. It has been an absolute pleasure listening to presentations by uh, Vedette and all of the other presenters who talked yesterday. So I study culture and consumption with a focus on inequality. And today I will present a portion of my research uh, that is for an ongoing project that looks at cultural philanthropy among corporations. So my talk today will specifically focus on American Indian and African American museums. But before I get started, I will talk a little bit about how I arrived at looking at this issue. The sociological research on cultural patronage typically centers on class. And my research complicates this approach by analyzing how racial and other social boundaries are also implicated in the practice. I began this approach in my first book, Represent Art and Identity Among the Black Upper Middle Class, which is a study on art collecting. My second book, Diversity and Philanthropy at African American Museums, examines why individuals give to black museums. And my book, Race, Ethnicity, and Consumption, A Sociological View, looks at the broader issue of race and consumption. Now with this new project, I examine how cultural patronage by uh, corporations is related to broader issues related to corporate image. Goldman Sachs, Coca-Cola, Bay Systems, and Kodak. These are just some of the major businesses that have supported the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, DC. When the National Museum of African American History and Culture which is also part of the Smithsonian, opened in 2016, these are some of the businesses that gave gifts of $1 million or more. So you see some familiar names such as Wells Fargo, FedEx, Nike, and Prudential. Well, it is clear how corporate patronage benefits ethnic museums like the National Museum of the American Indian and the National Museum of African American History and Culture, it is less clear how it pays off for businesses. So in this project, two of the questions that I am investigating are 
how do businesses benefit from ethnic museum patronage and what are the mechanisms that produce these benefits? So to answer these questions, I draw on an array of data, such as a database of PR and marketing texts on corporate cultural patronage that I have developed, documents from museum archives that I have visited, as well as ethnographic data. What I have found is that for businesses, cultural patronage at institutions such as the National Museum of the American Indian and the National Museum of African American History and Culture are a form of what I term diversity capital. Or patronage at ethnic museums is one of among other formal and informal cultural practices, values, and material forms that allow businesses to solve problems and leverage opportunities related to race and ethnicity and other social differences. But for describing how ethnic museum patronage functions as a form of diversity capital for businesses, let me touch on some of the academic scholarship that this project engages. There is a rich body of research on corporate cultural patronage. One finding is that corporate support for the arts is a practice through which companies improve their public image. Yet, for the most part, this research does not address corporate support of cultural initiatives focused on ethnic and racial minorities. In contrast, while the scholarship on race and cultural capital addresses how the consumption of culture linked to ethno-racial minorities allows individuals to construct their racial identity, it does not address the racial images of corporations. In this project, I bring together this scholarship and argue that patronage of ethnic museums is a form of diversity capital. One way that ethnic museum patronage operates as a form of diversity capital is its use in communicating that businesses value diversity and are committed and connected to ethno-racial minorities. In this way, ethnic museum patronage is an instrument for corporate impression management around race. While patronage at American Indian museums, African American museums, Asian American museums, 
and Latinx museums projects an image of caring about diversity in general, patronage at specific types of museums conveys that companies care about those particular groups. For example, giving to American Indian museums conveys that companies care about American Indian communities. And giving to African American museums communicates that businesses care about African Americans. There are varying mechanisms through which ethnic museum patronage conveys an image of businesses as valuing diversity. The mechanisms include, but are not limited to, the gift giving as a signifying act mechanism, the museum building as a signifying space mechanism, and the diversity framing mechanism. I will offer illustrations of each mechanism through examples of corporate giving at the National Museum of the American Indian and the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Before I do that, let me provide a brief history of both museums highlighting some corporate philanthropy milestones. In 1989, legislation was signed to establish the National Museum of the American Indian. In 1995, the Coca-Cola Foundation gave a $500,000 grant to the National Museum of the American Indian. In 1999, the groundbreaking took place for the National Museum of the American Indian. In 2002, 3M pledged a million dollars to the National Museum of the American Indian. And one year later, in 2003, legislation was signed to establish the National Museum of African American History and Culture. In 2004, Accenture announced a donation to the National Museum of the American Indian, and this was in September, and then a few days later, the National Museum of the American Indian opened. In 2005, AFLEC was one of the first major donors of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, giving $1 million. And in 2011, Walmart donated $5 million to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. In 2012, the groundbreaking for the National Museum of African American History and Culture took place. 
And in 2016, the National Museum of African American History and Culture opened. And as we saw from one of the slides earlier, by that time, dozens of businesses had donated $1 million or more. The National Museum of African American History and Culture uh, has continued to receive uh, corporate donations after the opening, as has the National Museum of the American Indian. In 2018, BNSF donated, donated a half a million dollars to the National Native American Veterans Memorial, which is the project organized by the National Museum of the American Indian. And in 2020, Truist donated $1 million to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. This summer, responding to the racial protests that have taken place, Amazon donated $27 million to be shared among 12 organizations, including the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So as we can see, corporate donations have been important for these museums as they are being built and after their doors have opened. But as we will see next, these donations also benefit businesses. They are a form of diversity capital that helps the companies project an image of being inclusive and equitable. One mechanism through which this takes place is that gift giving is a signifying act. My elaboration of this mechanism builds on social science research on gift giving, demonstrating that gift giving is an act of communication. As noted in an article on the anthropology of gift giving, gift transactions can be understood as expressive statements or movements in the management of meaning. Transactions become the basic expressive act by which symbols mediate cultural meaning. One meaning that giving a gift conveys is that the gift giver respects and cares about the gift receiver. I argue that one of the messages conveyed by corporations giving to ethnic museums is that they value diversity. In the case of gifts specifically to American Indian museums, gifts convey that corporations care about the American Indian community. Here we see an image from an event during which an executive at the aerospace and defense company, Northrop Grumman, announces a gift of $500,000 for the National Native American Veterans Memorial, 
which I noted earlier, is a project organized by the National Museum of the American Indian. The gift from the company to the museum is a signifying act communicating that the company is committed to the American Indian community. In a similar fashion, corporate gifts to African American museums are a signifying act conveying a commitment to African Americans. Here we see an image from an event where an executive from the car company GM is presenting a million dollar check to the then director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. The company's gift to the museum is a signifying act conveying valuing diversity and black Americans. On one hand, gifts to ethnic museums function as signifying acts. In addition, the act of giving is often concretized by listing business names as well as logos on and in museum buildings. In this way, the building itself becomes a cultural text that conveys that a company cares about diversity and the particular ethno-racial community whose culture is displayed in the building. Another way to think about this is that just as museums are repositories for objects that convey meaning, museum buildings themselves are objects that also communicate meaning. In cases where the names of corporate patrons who have supported ethnic museums are written on and in them, the buildings function as cultural texts that communicate that the companies care about diversity. For example, this is a display in the National Museum of the American Indian that lists donors. Here, companies such as Merrill Lynch, Microsoft, and Time Warner are listed. With these corporate names listed on the wall of the National Museum of the American Indian, the building functions as a cultural text conveying that these corporations are committed to and value American Indians. Corporate naming opportunities related to philanthropy and at African American museums function in a similar manner. The National Museum of African American History and Culture Building is a signifying structure conveying 
that various companies are committed to diversity and African-American museums and African-Americans more broadly. Here is an image from inside of the museum where the global retail company Walmart, which was a founding donor of the museum, is written on a wall. The last mechanism that I will discuss is what I term diversity framing. Corporate support of ethnic museums is typically written about in a variety of media channels, such as press releases and blogs. Diversity framing in these various media channels is also a mechanism through which ethnic museum patronage projects an image of companies as diverse and inclusive. A frame is what one scholar describes as the angle, scheme, or narrative arc that highlights one or more aspects of an event, issue, or actor. I define diversity framing as the use of words, phrases, images, and sounds to specifically communicate that ethnic museum patronage is a manifestation of a company's valuing of inclusivity and equity. Diversity framing goes beyond the basic act of publicizing giving to further the symbolic association of companies with diversity. For example, the promotional texts like press releases about corporate gifts to ethnic museums do not only discuss the gifts, but they also highlight other aspects of the company's diversity initiatives. For example, a press release about the Northrop Grumman gift to the National Museum of American Indians for the Veterans Memorial not only mentions the gift, but discusses the company's involvement in other efforts related to American Indians. For example, in one place, the press release reads, the company has a long history of supporting the Native American community. Another in this statement in the press release provides specific examples of this support. It reads, since 1970, Northrop Grumman has actively worked to partner with native and tribally owned businesses through supplier partnerships and operations in Indian country. The company has also been a longtime supporter of Native Americans through scholarship and mentor programs, employee diversity recruitment and retention, Native American employee resource groups, and participation in the Indian Incentive Program. A similar process of diversity framing 
takes place in media promoting corporate gifts to African American museums. A press release about one of Walmart's gifts to the National Museum of African American History and Culture not only mentions the gift, but also talks more broadly about the company's diversity initiatives. In one place, the press release reads, Walmart and the Walmart Foundation have a long history of supporting diversity and inclusion. Another statement in the press release offers specific examples of the company's diversity initiative. It reads as follows. Walmart and the Walmart Foundation seek to transform systems to help create more equitable opportunities for all. Specifically, Walmart and the Walmart Foundation invest in work to diversify talent pipelines, build more inclusive small business ownership, and enhance community cohesion. Most recently, Walmart funded a report published by FSG which outlined steps employees, employers can take to remove barriers to advancement of frontline employees of color. In the press release, there is also a link to the FSG report. To conclude, my research finds that corporate patronage of ethnic museums doesn't just benefit the museums. Bene businesses themselves also benefit from these gifts. More specifically, I elaborate how giving to ethnic museums is a form of diversity capital that allows companies to project an image of valuing equity and inclusion. As there are efforts to establish other ethnic museums, it is especially important to understand how corporations benefit from ethnic cultural patronage. For example, just last month in July, the House passed a bill to create the National Museum of the American Latino as part of the Smithsonian. In 2011, a report on the feasibility of establishing a Smithsonian National Museum of the American Latino estimated that more than 40% of funds could potentially come from corporations. If a National Museum of the American Latino is established, the concept of diversity capital will help to illuminate how and why corporations benefit from supporting it. 
So I think this is a good place to end. And thank you again to everyone who helped to organize the conference and all of the participants. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was such a knowledgeable presentation. Thank you. I learned a lot. So now we have our second panel, Theoretical Museology and Ethics, which will be moderated by Michelle Rivet. Michelle? Actually, Susie, let's before we do that, let me For 10 uh, minutes. Go. OK. Yeah, I, let's let's take a break until eleven o'clock, since that's when the uh, okay, panel is supposed to begin. Good. I need to reset the recordings and all that anyway, so it'll oh. just take me a minute here. So we'll come back and start again. In we'll about, come back uh, in ten minutes. Then yes, sounds good. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>